Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning as we continue our Advent series with these gospel and nutshell passages. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 8. We're going to begin with this fifth command of this chapter. Begin reading there in verse 8, and we're just going to read through verse 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would attend to your word such that I would speak it truthfully and helpfully, that as I do, your son would speak by the spirit through his word to your people, that you would give us understanding, that we would know what it means to remember Jesus Christ and that we would attend to that, that we would hear this faithful promise and that we would hear the threat or the warning that's given as well. We need you to cause us to endure in the faith and we know you've given us means, and we pray that we would have the grace to faithfully attend to them. Help us to understand this word, to be transformed by it more and more into the image of your son, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite things about Christmas is that we are encouraged every year to remember Jesus. We're encouraged to remember Jesus and his first advent, what we call his first coming. Obviously, yet we're also to be remembering his second coming, but we're always remembered every year to remember his first coming. And as a people, you probably know that it's easy for us to forget. We are often those who forget. That's why religious tradition, in other words, what I mean by religious tradition, consistent and regular worship practices are good for us. Religious tradition is good because through it we remember. Now, I know that we are in a culture that tends to think that religious traditions are bad. We need a relationship, not a religion. That is not what the Bible teaches. Yes, you have a relation to God through Christ, but that relation to God through Christ, you're reminded of through the religious traditions that the Bible provides for you. Now, those religious traditions can be bad if they're not biblical or they're attended to in an empty-hearted way. In other words, you're not sincere in the faith, you're just going through the motions. Then religious traditions can be bad. But we need religious traditions or practices, and thus God gives them to us, to remember. And if we fail to remember, then we veer from Christ. We will not endure in the faith if we do not remember Jesus Christ. If we lose sight of Christ, we will wander away. Like a sheep that loses sight of the shepherd, we wander off. Remembering Jesus Christ. If I could get you to grab hold of one thing today. If you walk out of here and don't remember anything else, please remember this. 
Remembering Jesus Christ is necessary to our perseverance or endurance in the faith. It's necessary to our perseverance or endurance in the faith for the gospel minister, which is the context of 2 Timothy. Paul is first and foremost addressing a gospel minister, Timothy, and telling him to remember Jesus Christ. It's necessary for the gospel minister, but it's also necessary for the average believer. So as we consider our text today, we're going to consider two truths. First, that remembering Jesus Christ is necessary to our endurance in the faith. That's the first thing we're going to look at. We're going to look at that in verses 8 through 10. Second, we're going to see a faithful promise and warning regarding remembering Jesus Christ. We'll see that in verses 11 through 13. This early Christian hymn in verses 11 through 13, we're going to see a faithful promise and a warning with regard to remembering Jesus Christ. So those are our two parts. So let's consider our first truth. Remembering Jesus Christ is necessary. Please hear that. Necessary to your endurance in the faith. Look at 2 Timothy 2.8. The command. It's in the imperative. In other words, that's the form of the verb. It's a form of a command. Remember Jesus Christ. That's how the text begins. Remember him. It's the fifth command given in this section. Look up at 2 Timothy 2.1. You then, my child, here's the first command, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, be strengthened, that's the first command. Second command, verse 2, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men. So be strengthened and entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Third command, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Fourth command, verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think about it. Contemplate it. Chew on it. Fifth command, remember Jesus Christ. So be strengthened, entrust, share Think or meditate and then remember. Those are the five commands given here. If a gospel minister, and that's the first context as I told you, if a gospel minister is to quit himself properly to endure suffering, to persevere in the faith and in the ministry, then he must remember Jesus Christ. If you do not remember Jesus Christ and his work and his benefits to us, then you will not endure suffering for the gospel. You will not. If you do not endure, then you will become like Phygelus or Hermogenes in 2 Timothy 1.15 who have wandered away, or Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy 1.20 who have wandered away, or you'll become like Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10 who in love with this present world has deserted us. In other words, you will become one of those who veer from the faith. I name all of those men because you need to understand that Paul's giving this command in the context of a church, the church at Ephesus, and in the context of naming actual members of their body, some of whom are elders who have walked away from the faith. This is not just sitting here in the air as a kind of general principle. This is Paul, the planter of this church, telling Timothy, the man he sent to pastor it, you've watched all these people walk away. Fellow ministers of the gospel, remember Jesus Christ or you'll be like them. Saints, while Paul is first addressing Timothy, and thus first addressing gospel ministers, 
He's also addressing all believers in Christ. How do we know that? Because the last phrase of 1 Timothy and the last phrase of 2 Timothy, in other words, 1 Timothy 6.21, 2 Timothy 4.22, both end with this phrase, grace be with you. And the you is there as a plural, so y'all. Grace be with you all. In other words, these letters are being read to the whole church. The whole church is hearing this, and thus they're receiving, if you will, the secondary application of it. It isn't just the gospel ministers that we need to remember Jesus Christ if they're going to endure. It's also the members of the church that they need to remember Jesus Christ if they're going to endure. So while gospel ministers must heed what Paul is saying, church members need to do so as well. And here's the command we all need to heed. Remember Jesus Christ. What do we need to remember about Jesus Christ? Look what he says. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Okay, now, Jesus Christ is the way of addressing him. His name is Jesus, Yahweh saves, the Lord saves, and his last name is not Christ. You guys understand that? He wasn't Mr. Christ. It's a reference to his office as the Messiah. Now, it becomes so familiar to him, he's the Messiah, the Savior, that we just refer to him almost like it's a last name. Remember Jesus Remember the Messiah. Now look what it goes on to say. Risen from the dead. That's telling you about his work. If you remember, Jesus came, the incarnation. He took humanity to himself. He kept the law in our place. He went to the cross and paid the penalty for us, if you will, taking the death that belongs to us. He took it and he rose from the dead. That's all comprehended in this phrase, risen from the dead. You have to die to be risen from the dead. You guys understand how that works? And you have to be holy, righteous, and undefiled to be risen from the dead. Risen from the dead. The offspring of David. That's speaking to his office as the Messiah and, if you will, his humiliation and nature as man. So that Matthew's gospel begins when he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of who, or the generations of who? Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Speaking to his person and his work. So he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Now Paul spoke in this way before, so keep your hand there and look over at Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. You're going to see a very similar language. Here's how this text starts. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, a doulos, a bond slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. God has set him apart in the unique office of an apostle. Called to be an apostle, what does it say? Set apart for the gospel of God. That is what he's set apart for, for the gospel of God, as preached in my gospel. Now, what's that gospel about? Look at the next phrase of verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Spirit. So that's where we know the derivation of that gospel. That message was actually preached in the Old Testament. Now look what he says. Concerning his son. That's what it's about. This gospel concerning his son. Paul, I'm a slave, an apostle, a man set apart for the gospel. The gospel that the Old Testament prophesied, the gospel about concerning God's own son. What does it say about him? Who was descended from David according to the flesh. In other words, he took humanity to himself. That's his humiliation. 
He took humanity to himself. Descended from David according to the flesh. Not only did he take humanity to himself, he took the humanity of David's genealogy to himself. In other words, the one who was promised the Messiah would come from his household, King David. That's the household he is from. Descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, he has always been the Son of God who took humanity to himself, but he was in a state of humiliation. When he is declared to be the Son of God in power, what that's referencing is what Russell preached in 1 Timothy 3, that when Christ resurrected from the dead, he was vindicated before all as holy and righteous and undefiled as the Son of God. This is speaking to his humiliation, descended from David according to the flesh, and his exaltation. He's the one who was vindicated before all creation as being the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, our Savior. And then in case you weren't sure it's about his son, look at the next phrase, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the one I preach. I preach Christ and his work for us. That's what Paul's saying. His person and his work. And the application of that, look what he says in verse 5 of Romans 1, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, Christ has set me apart as an apostle to preach his name, to preach his person and his work, and to preach the benefits that come to you as his people from that. Salvation. And I want to make that known in every nation for the sake of his name. I want men to be saved. I want God to be glorified. And that's what he sent me to do. This is Paul's gospel. The history, what Christ has done, and the doctrine that he's done it for you and for your salvation. What God did in the person and work of Jesus Christ in history and how that is applied to us is the whole course of Paul's ministry. It's what it's all about. Paul preaches Christ and him crucified. Now, please hear me. All true theologians, that's theologians, people who study God. All true theologians preach Christ and him crucified. All of them do. In other words, all true pastors, all true pastors preach Christ and him crucified. For we are literally paid theologians. We are paid to do one thing. Know this book and the God whom it reveals and teach that to you. That's what we exist to do. That's our calling. A true pastor is a man of God's word. A man who proclaims Christ in all of scriptures. Our whole job is to know God and his word and to proclaim him from his word. Charles Spurgeon said it well. The marrow of theology. In other words, the marrow is the very stuff that makes up the bone, if you will. The marrow of theology is Christ The very bone and sinew of the gospel is preaching Christ. A Christless sermon is the merriment of hell. It is also a fearful waste of time. And it dies with the blood of souls, the skirts of the man who dares to preach it. That's some pretty strong language, friends. 
A man who has a Christless sermon has not only wasted your time, he's participated in causing joy and hell and dyed the blood of his skirt, if you will, his ministerial robe with the blood of the souls to whom he was preaching that Christless sermon. Look back at 2 Timothy 2.9. He starts his little word for, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David has preached in my gospel for which I am suffering. See, I'm suffering for this, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. See, it is for this gospel that Paul's in prison. This isn't the first time he's in prison. This is the second time he's in prison. And on this occasion, he tells us in 2 Timothy 4, it's the end of the race. He's going to die this time. But he's in prison. But his imprisonment is not stopping the forward momentum of the gospel. It's still going forward. You know, you can put me in chains. You can't put the gospel in chains. The word of God can't be stopped. That's what he's saying. So I'm in prison, but the word of God is not bound. It's going forward. It's going forward as I've preached it into the hearts of men. It has gone forward from them to others. And it's going to keep going forward. And I'm happy to suffer for it. I endure everything for the sake of making the gospel known to the elect. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Why does Paul endure everything? So that the elect may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with glory. I lay down my whole life. This is the life of a gospel minister. I lay down my whole life so that God's people might hear the gospel and be saved. That's it. That's what it's all about. I'll endure everything. Prison, and in Paul's case, eventually death so that Christ's people hear his word and are saved. Friends, herein is the great benefit of the gospel. Notice what he's concerned about, that you get, last phrase there in verse 10, they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here's the great benefit of the gospel. You get Jesus and you get eternal glory with him. When we die, death is coming for us all. You understand that? We don't like to talk about it. We like to put our cemeteries as far away from us as we can so we don't have to see it. We don't even want to have funerals anymore. We don't want to mourn. We just want to have celebrations of life and pretend like someone didn't just die, which is horrific every time it happens. A tremendous loss. We don't want to face the reality. Death is coming for us all. And when we die... As believers, our lives do not end. Our lives do not end. Rather, we're rushed, if you will, into the immediate, majestic, splendorous, everywhere present glory of God. We will be before his face, beholding his manifest and eternal glory forever. Your eternal life doesn't begin by the way the day you die. It begins on the day that you believe. Eternal life begins. And when you die, you're just progressing in eternal life. You're now seeing God for who he is. Paul, as a minister of Jesus Christ, who has received this salvation, is now pleased to follow his Savior and offer himself, enduring all things for the sake of God's elect. 
Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who despised the cross, enduring its shame. Why? For the joy that was set before him. What is that joy? The honor of God's name and the salvation of his people. And Paul's like, I want to follow him there. Paul wants their salvation in Christ Jesus with glory above all else. He wants them to share in what he has in Christ. And that's what we want for you, Sovereign Grace. That's what we want for you. That's what we want for your children. Children, if you're here and you wonder, what do our pastors want for us above all else? We want your salvation. We want you to know Christ and one day to see his glory. This is what we want for our neighbors. This is what we're supposed to want for the heathen peoples of the world. I know it's not popular to say heathen peoples anymore because everybody's just good, right? If they don't know Christ, they're heathens. We want them to know Christ. We don't despise them. We send gospel ministers to them. We want them to know Christ, to be saved by him, and to have the hope of eternal life in glory. And Paul knows that that is so easy to lose sight of. So easy to lose sight of, especially as we suffer. Thus he exhorts us that we must remember Jesus Christ. Now the Lord has given us two primary means for remembering Christ. Two primary means. Let me go over those. I'll have a few little sub-points in here that are brief, but... Two primary means for remembering Jesus Christ. How do I do it? Great. I'm supposed to remember Jesus Christ. You can shout at me, remember Jesus Christ all day long, and okay, great. I know I'm supposed to do that. How do I do it? Well, the Lord gives us two primary means. One is the preaching of the word. The second is the sacraments. So I'm going to talk about both of those. First, we remember Jesus Christ through the reading, exposition, singing, reciting, and praying of his word. I just say, the word of God, that's how we remember him. He's given us his word. Keep your hand there in 2 Timothy 2 and look at 1 Timothy, the book just before it, and chapter 4, as Paul instructs Timothy, this young gospel minister, notice what he tells him to do in chapter 4 and verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Where is it supposed to be read? Publicly. Notice he doesn't say to the private reading of Scripture. Yeah, do that too. That's great. But devote yourself as a gospel minister, Timothy, to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. In other words, you read that word publicly, and you explain it, and you apply it. This is so important to the life of the Christian church that Timothy must devote himself to it. Give yourself over to this. Publicly read the Bible, explain what it means, and apply it to people. Exhortation. Tell them what to do with it. He must hold fast to that word, to guard it, to pass it on to others. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. In other words, that's the doctrine I've taught you. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So he's supposed to publicly read, teach, exhort. He's supposed to follow the pattern of sound words the doctrine has been given. He's supposed to guard it. So he's devoted to teaching, reading, guarding. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So he's supposed to entrust this to others who will be able to teach others also. 
Look at verse 15 of chapter 2. Do your best, here's Paul to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Now, who's one who's approved? A worker who has no need to be shamed. Why? He rightly is handling the word of truth. He is to herald and teach this word, whether people want to hear it or not, and he's to do so with great patience. So look at chapter 4 of 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. That means whether people want to hear it or don't want to hear it. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And why is this devotion so important? Because 2 Timothy 3.14, the word of God makes you wise. The sacred scriptures make you wise unto salvation. They're also given by the Spirit of God and useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. The Word of God makes you wise for salvation. It's given by the Spirit to do the work of sanctification so that men are matured in the faith. Do you guys hear the emphasis here that Paul's giving to Timothy about his job description? It's really clear. This isn't the job description. The job description isn't, hey, Timothy, if people really want to hear this, then go ahead and read it and teach it to them. If they don't, find something else they'd like to hear or maybe put on some good programs, that'd be great. They don't want to hear the Bible. You know what they like? They like a rock band and they like a raging children's youth ministry and they love a lot of good events. And maybe you can get up there, sort of give them a verse, challenge them in some way, tell some cool stories. And that's what you can do when they're not interested in sitting under the teaching of this word. That's not what Paul says. Paul says you are to preach the word, whether people want to hear it or not, with complete patience and teaching. Publicly read it. Teach them. Exhort them. Guard the good doctrine. Friends, this is the central means the Lord has given so we might remember Jesus Christ. If we forget him, then we will veer from the faith. We will not endure. So let me give some brief pastoral implications to that. First, the single most important measure of a church ministry, in other words, the way you weigh a church ministry, is the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Ministers are to pour out all their energy into knowing this book and to teaching and defending it properly. That's their whole life. We're to lift up Christ and all the scriptures. Christ is to permeate our own thoughts and devotion, and that out of that man's life is to come the feeding of Christ's people. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, preaching is theology coming from a man who is on fire. Now, Lloyd-Jones does not mean that that man is merely emotionally moved, though he's not accepting that. What he means is that the man's whole mind and heart are so filled with the glory of Christ and his gospel message, so compelled by the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Spirit, so utterly transformed by the careful and constant study of the word of God that his own preaching is an act of worship. It isn't just that the man is standing up here doing something performative, that he's up here just 
teaching you like a lecture in a classroom, but that he himself is up here worshiping God in front of you as he holds out Christ's word to you, ever mindful that he is a sheep before he is a shepherd and he needs the word of God every bit as much as you do. As he opens the word of God, the spirit of God thunders forth in your hearts and minds so that you're captured by the grace of God and the love of Christ and his word. If a minister is not devoted to this, if he is not working hard in this, if he's distracted with running a corporate entity, facilitating programs, putting together great events, even with the physical service of people in need, Acts chapter 6, you can look that up, then he puts in jeopardy the souls of his own hearers and his own soul. 1 Timothy 4, 16, you don't have to turn there, but listen, Paul makes it really clear to Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, here is the vocation of a minister of the word. He is to teach the whole counsel of God in the scriptures. And as the central object of his proclamation, he is to lift up Christ and his work for us. The only hope you or your children or your neighbors or the nations have, the only hope is if the whole church is suffused with the preaching of the word of God by spirit-empowered men who hold up Christ as central to all of it. That's it. Friends, the word preaches the primary means the spirit gave to the church to remember Jesus Christ. If a church fails in that task, she might as well close the doors, move on. Whatever she is, she is no longer a church. Second, the word of God must be sung, prayed, and recited. Just briefly, we don't just hear the word preached. We sing it, we pray it, we recite it. We're to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. That's what those who are filled by the Holy Spirit do. And most people go, okay, I get it. The Lord, like, actually the Lord wrote 150 songs for us to sing. The Psalms, those are what those are. The Lord wrote the song, so I get we're supposed to sing the word of God. Fantastic. But what's this business about reciting stuff? Where's that from? Well, there are hymns or sayings that have been common to the church throughout history. So verses 11 through 13 in our own passage is a hymn or a saying that was most likely repeated, recited. The church would stand up and recite it. You see another one in Philippians 2, 5 and following. There's a variety of these that the church most likely recited. In fact, the church didn't generally sing these kinds of things. For the first several centuries, their singing was more like Gregorian chant especially in the middle part of church history. You wouldn't want to do that, trust me. You think just reciting it's a little bit awkward? Try a Gregorian chant sometime. But you can think of the Apostles' Creed, which the church has been saying since the second century, or the Gloria Patri, which the church has been singing since the second century. And we have several biblical examples of that. So, verses 11 through 13, the saying is trustworthy or faithful. We then read what is akin to a hymn or a recitation. These were given for one purpose, that the church might remember Jesus Christ. Third little application, the word of God must be meditated upon daily, because I know what's going to come. All you've talked about is what happens in public worship. Fantastic. What about the day-to-day from there? Well, just so you know, in the context of the New Testament, they were meeting every day. Okay, we're not now, so what now? Well, you have the Bible in your own language. That is an incredible gift not everybody has. 
So you meditate on it every day. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Friends, you've been given the gift of God's word in your own language so you can read it and chew on it and think about it every day. Every day. That's a means of remembering Jesus Christ, the word of God. Preached, the word of God. Sung and recited and prayed, the word of God meditated upon daily. The second way, remember Jesus Christ is through the sacraments. The Lord gave the church, if you will, these two visible words. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are the two sacraments he gave us. The sacraments tell us promises from God. They are signs of God's promises, signs of the person and work of Jesus. You're going to hear me hound you about this as long as I live. Sacraments are not something you're offering to God. They are something God offers to you. God did not look down and go, I know you profess faith in me, but I'm not going to believe it unless you're wet. If you get in the water, then I'll start to believe something you have to say. I know you say you're repenting of your sins in front of me and you really want to walk anew, but I'm not going to believe it unless you chew on a cracker and drink some juice or wine. That's not how this works. These are Sacraments God gave to us, not to tell us we really mean it, but to tell us he really means it. I will save you. Here's a sign that I will. I will hold on to you in my son, walk among you. Here's a sign that I will. Baptism is the sacrament wherein we're received in a Christ church. Baptism is a sacrament you receive only once. And it's a sign that all who believe in Christ are united to him, raised to new life, washed clean, forgiven, declared righteous. While you are not baptized over and over again, you do see others baptized. So you might say, well, how is baptism that only happens once even beneficial to me? Well, listen, because once God made the promises to you, he's kept them but also because every time you see other believers baptized, you're reminded that God made those same promises to you. Second, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of ongoing fellowship in Christ's body. As those who believe in a united Christ and his body, we're given a regular time of remembrance of Christ's person and work. If you don't believe me that sacraments are for remembrance, let me just remind you of this. Do this in remembrance of me. In the early church, they did not argue, by the way, over whether to have the Lord's Supper monthly or quarterly or semi-annually. Here's what the argument was in the early church. You can see it between Augustine and some of his interlocutors. One of the things they're arguing over is, do we have the Lord's Supper once a week or do we take it every day? Seems like maybe every day because we need to be reminded of Jesus Christ. Like we have veered a long way from that point. We understand that we must be encouraged to remember Jesus Christ. He is our life. 
This is why the Protestant reformers argued that if you want to find a true church, then you must look first for the true preaching of the gospel and second for the right administration of the sacraments. The third mark for those reformers was church discipline, by the way. In other words, does the church care about sound doctrine and godly living? If it does, then church discipline is practiced. Do you hear that? If the church cares about sound doctrine and godly living, then it necessarily practices church discipline. People can be friendly, music can be excellent, preaching can be decent, programs that you like can abound, but if church discipline is absent, then so is any true concern for the holiness of God, the soundness of doctrine, and the immortal souls of church members. Now, as I come to church discipline and speak in this way, we're brought forth to our second major truth, which is the faithful promise and warning regarding remembering Jesus Christ. So look there with me at 2 Timothy 2.11. The saying is trustworthy. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. So that's one couplet. If we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure with him, we'll also reign with him. The next couplet. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And then it's addendum, for he cannot deny himself. These two couplets drive us to two distinct responses to Christ and two distinct outcomes. They give us a faithful promise and, if you will, a faithful threat or a faithful warning. Let's consider the promise first. The promise is that those who endure in faith will live and reign with Christ. Verse 11, if we had died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. Paul speaks in the same manner in Romans 6, 8. He speaks this way in Galatians 2, 20. If we die with Christ, then we'll also live with him. What does that mean? Those who trust in Christ, who have saving faith, are united to him in his death on the cross. Now, I want you to think about this. The death of Christ at the cross, the resurrection of Christ from the grave, was applied to you the moment you believed. But it was accomplished the day that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Do you understand that? So you were crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, and yet I live. Not I, but he who lives within me. The day Christ was crucified, my sins were put to death. They were put to death that day. The old man was crucified that day with Christ, that old Adamic nature. And so I live with him through faith. I'm resurrected to new life with him. Your guilt and corruption were put to death in Christ, and you were spiritually resurrected through faith in Christ. You were born again to a new life. Thus, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not he will be a new creation, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This resurrection is a present reality. We are resurrected in Christ. It's also a future reality. We will be bodily resurrected with Christ. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. Again, this is true in our present legal status. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. But by experience, it's only future. Hear that? I know we hear this phrase, the victorious Christian life. Let me just give you some bad news. We are not presently living the victorious Christian life. You are not presently living the victorious Christian life. Rather, 
You are now living as those who are oppressed and opposed, as sojourners and strangers on the earth. But we do not despair, for we know what the Bible promises to those who are God's children through faith in Christ. We are, listen, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Those who are true professors are those who have been born again and their faith will endure to the end. Those who are false professors are not born again and they will fall away. That's the warning. The warning that those who do not endure will be denied by Christ. Look at verse 12, the second half of it. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. False faith always commits apostasy. Always. But how false professors commit apostasy does not always look the same. There are at least three shapes that denial of Christ can take. The denial of Christ can be a personal and public rejection of him. So we hear about that in Matthew, for example, chapter 10 and verse 32 and 33. If you confess my name before men, I'll confess your name before my Father in heaven. If you deny my name before men, I will deny your name before my Father is in heaven. That's just a personal and public rejection of Christ. You might say, yeah, but Peter did that. Peter denied Christ's name before men, didn't he? Yes. So did Paul, by the way, who's writing this letter, the blasphemer and persecutor of Christ's church. But these men did not remain in that state of sin. They both repented and trusted in Christ. So when I'm saying denial of Christ that's damning, what I mean is you deny him publicly before men and you remain in that state. Second way people deny Christ is by rejecting biblical doctrine. When you reject the biblical doctrine about Christ's person and work, you can say you're a Christian all day long. But 2 Peter 2, 1 will tell you you're not a Christian. Jude 4 will tell you you're not a Christian. 1 John 2, 22 through 23 will tell you. They'll all say that by denying the truth about Christ's person and work, you deny the master. You deny Christ. That's the language. You deny him. The third way you take shape is denying Christ by your deeds. Titus, the next letter Paul writes, says in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Now, I want to say this because this is, the, I think, the popular one in our own culture. This marked with Jude 4, which is that grace gives me license to sin. In saying that, I'm denying Christ. Here's the way it works is deny Christ. Of course I'm a Christian. I just don't want to do anything Christ has to say to me. He tells me to gather with his church regularly. I got better things to do. He tells me to obey his law. I have better ideas than his. A better path forward. Everything he tells me to do, I'll weigh it out. It seems beneficial to me. I'll do it. If it doesn't, I won't. I say I believe him. I profess to know him, but my deeds or my works, I deny him. Be clear, friends. If you are not a person whose life is marked by repentance, I trust the Lord, and not whose life is marked by sinlessness. I didn't say that. That's our heavenly goal. But whose life is marked by repentance. Every time I walk in a manner 
opposite of what God's word says, if I'm not repenting and trying to do differently, then I profess to know God, but I deny him by my deeds. You are not a Christian. You're not. Repentant people are Christians. Or Christians, how about this, are repentant people. Not perfectly sinless people, but people who recognize that Christ is our Lord and Savior and we walk with him. And that's the warning that's being given here. And you might say, I know I've done these sinful acts. I've had incorrect doctrine. I'm sure you've done sinful acts. I'm sure you've had incorrect doctrine. So have I. But those who know Christ have their minds transformed by the word of God and they walk in repentance daily. The denial we speak of here is those who recalcitrantly hold on to their false doctrine, who pridefully refuse to have their minds disciplined by the word of God. This is the denial of those who refuse to have their works conform to the standard of God's law. That's what Paul's talking about. They are stubbornly a law unto themselves. Friends, we rarely exercise church discipline upon someone who says to us, I'm no longer a believer in Jesus. They almost never say that. What they say is, I am a believer in Jesus. I just don't want to do anything he has to say. They don't say it quite that way. But you get it. That's the substance of it. And we have to say, you profess to know God, but you deny him by your works. And what will Christ do to those who deny him? If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, that's without faith, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. If you are faithless, Christ remains faithful to all his holy word. He remains faithful both to his promise to save those who believe and his promise to deny all those who deny him. That's what he's getting at. When he says Christ cannot deny himself, what Paul is saying is Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. When he speaks, when he makes promises, they're unchanging for he is unchanging. Thus you can take it to the bank that Christ will save all those who endure in the faith, all true professors. You can also take it to the bank that Christ will deny all those who deny him. All false professors and unbelievers. There is here both an encouraging promise and a frightening threat. Therefore we must remember Jesus Christ using the means he's given us to that end. I remind you, saint, if we are truly his, then Christ is ever interceding for us and he'll hold us firm to the end. His spirit is in us and he'll transform us more and more into Christ's image. So may we cast ourselves upon Christ every day, every day, never forgetting him. May God give us the grace to endure in the faith. If you're his, you will. If you're his, you will. Let me pray. Father, we ask your kindness upon us we know that Christ is our all-sufficient Savior. We know that apart from him, we have no hope of salvation, but in him we have every hope. And we pray that we would be marked as a repentant people. We recognize, Father, that we so often sin, we so often have ungodly thoughts and ungodly deeds, and we desire to be corrected by your word, to be reminded to look to Christ, every day. Cause us to be a people who remember Christ and so endure in the faith. We know that if we are yours, you will. We know that if we belong to Christ, no one could snatch us from your hand or his, not even ourselves. 
And yet we also know you give us means to endure in the faith, namely the means of remembering Christ. We pray that we would. In Jesus' name, amen.